Today on Melanated Conversations, we amplify the voices of Dr. Tracy Baxley and ally Christine Smith. Dr. Baxley is the founder and creator of Social Justice Parenting and is also a cultural awareness and racial identity expert to nonprofit agencies that support transracial families. Christine Smith is an advanced trauma competent giver. Christine focuses her work on educating and training adoptive parents on the effects of trauma in adoptees and the unique challenges of transracial parenting. Tune in to our special group chat as we keep it real while discussing the challenges of transracial adoptions and the effects of being a transracial adoptee. Welcome to Melanated Conversations, our narrative and our perspective. Here on the podcast, we are amplifying the voices of Black women and sharing their powerful stories of transformation. I'm Tarian. And I'm Yana. Let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Melanated Conversations. I'm your co-host, Yana. And I'm your co-host, Tarian. Yes, and welcome back to the show. So mm-hmm. on today's um, show, you guys, we um, actually have been planning this episode for a while. Um, we originally had plans to meet um, a few of us in person and have this important conversation. But, you know, as with everyone in the world, um, our plans had to shift a little. And... Um, You know, but nonetheless, we are excited to have this chat today. Um, Terry and I have each brought in a special guest for for today's chat. Uh, We have our good friend and former guest of the show, um, Dr. Tracy Baxley. Yay! And friend and ally, Christine Smith. Um, We've gathered around to have a group chat today on transracial families and adoptions. And so for those of you who are listening today, um, if you don't know what a group chat is, y'all know, I feel like most of our listeners know what a group chat is, but a group chat is usually, you know, you've got a chain of friends that your inner circle that you can have conversations with about certain topics or things that are happening in life or in the world. And you can just be a lot more transparent and open about, you know, certain things around this group of people. And so this conversation today is is meant to be transparent and open and to share our hearts and our stories. And so that's what our guests are going to do with us today. And I'm just so super excited about about this conversation that we're having. Yes, I agree. So again, just join us in welcoming Dr. Tracy Baxley and Miss Christine Smith. Yay! Thank you, ladies. Welcome. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Yeah, this is exciting. All right. Okay. Well, we're actually not going to waste time today. Um, you guys, typically we do things. We start off, as you know, with our rapid fire round, but we really want to get to the heart and the deepness of today's conversation and allow room for this chat. Um, so we're actually going to just jump right into our first topic. Um, well, actually, we actually want to start with just a little overview and backstory um, of both um, Christine and Tracy. So starting with you, Christine, can you share a little bit about, you know, you and your parenting um, and adoption story? I'm sure I have five adopted kids. So my adoption story is kind of long. 
Um, but my husband, actually, his aunt is married to a Ugandan. And so my husband's been going to Africa since he was uh, 12, 13. Um, and so that was just something that he fell in love with, um, his uncle's culture, and just knew that that would probably be something in his future. And so we plans to, uh, to uh, adopt and add to our family that way. Um, so we brought our first son home in 2010 from Uganda and lived there for six weeks. And being there and being in the orphanage and spending time with the babies, we just decided that it would be really soon when we came back. So two years later, we got two more from the same orphanage, um, two more brothers. And then two years later, um, international adoption in Uganda had come to a halt. And uh, our adoption agency called us and said, we know you've been looking to add to your family um, and international adoption in Uganda is not happening. And so they said, we've just started an embryo adoption program. And it was something I had been in the adoption world and I had been doing trainings and had never really heard about embryo adoption. So that's when, you know, another couple goes through an IVF cycle and then they donate the embryos that were left over once they're done completing their family. And so we were actually chosen um, by a black genetic family. Um, to take their embryos. So I gave birth to a little girl in 2015 who has a black genetic parent um, that live on the East Coast that we have a relationship with. And then in 2018, I gave birth to another embryo adopted baby who is half white and half Hispanic. Um, so our family is has a lot of different relationships going on. We have transracial adoption and we have uh, cross-cultural um, adoption with our three Ugandans. So um, that's a little bit about how our family came together. Nice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tracy, would you mind kind of sharing a little bit about your your family and your parenting story? Uh, yes. Well, my uh, parenting story is obviously a little bit different from Christine. Well, actually a lot different from Christine's. Um, I, my, I have five children as well, and they are all my birth children, but um, my husband is white, Caucasian, and so I have uh, five biracial children. And I think where Christine and um, my story connect is through this idea of transracial families. And um, based on my own kind of background on uh, belonging, you know, as a child, um, as a young adult, as a teacher, and now, you know, as a mother of five biracial children, it's kind of become my passion and my and my work, my life's work, really, to I call myself a belonging advocate, right? That people find spaces where they belong and that it's a basic human right that we all need to have and to foster for children. And so my love for the idea of belonging has taken me on a path where I'm working with transracial families and helping particularly white parents, white moms um, who have adopted black and biracial children and um, creating space of belonging for, for, for their children. Um, so I've developed a framework around working with transracial families like the scenes. Nice. I just realized y'all both have 10 children between the two of you. <laughs> right? 
Bless our hearts. Man, God bless y'all. That's, that's all I got to say about it. I'll, I'll, I'll take those blessings. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm giving them freely. Giving them away, okay? Um, I, Yana, did you have a question or anything? I, I'm curious, just uh, from Christine, how was it for you, the idea of... Um, like even with your embryo adoption and then adopting your children from Uganda, like knowing that you were going to be adopting um, black children, like wh- was that like a th- how was that process for you, like this going forward or de- or making that decision, if that makes sense? Um, I think you know there are a lot of factors that go into why transracial adoption is happening a lot in the adoption world. Um, there is a a large percent of adoptions are going to be transracial um, because of the nature of the system and because of the way that we have, you know, disproportionately removed black and brown children from their families. And so um, we knew that adopting from Uganda, obviously our kids were going to be African. Mm -hmm. And so um, we just, decided, you know, I don't do anything halfway. So once I knew that that was going to be how our family would look, you know, Vance's uncle, who's Ugandan, was able to kind of sit us down and say, this is what it looks like to be married into a white family. These are the things that, you know, I've kind of faced in this family and in this world. And, you know, these are the ways we can start preparing um, for you to kind of manage that and set yourself up for you know, a greater chance of um, being able to impart to your kid those those life lessons and values that we don't as white parents necessarily even have to think about. Mm. Um, so we tried to be very intentional before we got our first son home about educating ourselves and about learning about what it might be like once our kid came home. And just to jump in there with uh, Christine talking about the system, just to throw a statistic out there, um, there are approximately 1.7 million adoptees in the U.S. This is U.S. Um, and 40% of those are transracially adopted. So we're seeing, obviously, there's a higher and higher uptick of families that are adopting um, transracially. So I think the, the more, and, and this is my fear, if we're going to like really use this as a group chat, this is my yeah, fear. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of white women and because I work with moms, I mean, it's parents, but I'm going to speak from a mom's perspective because um, that's who I am. And that's who I traditionally work with when I work with families. Um, but I have this thing that, uh, you know, part of my framework is uh, um, about white families thinking love is enough and love is not enough. And I like that Christine is saying that I did the work and Mm -hmm. part of, because once you adopt a child of color, you are now a family of color. You you no longer are a white family and you cannot go through the world seeing yourself as a white family and the privileges that that bring. Um, And that, you know, I know a lot of families that I I encounter, they talk about loving their kids and, 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 but it's really not enough is being colorblind it's really a practice of white privilege and you are no longer afforded that, I guess, privilege to, to see the world through that lens because you have become 
now a, a family of color. Um, so the numbers are getting higher and we need more families, more leaders of these families who are stepping up the way Christine did, did in preparing herself. I mean, obviously it's very fluid and it's ongoing, but um, doing the work ahead of time and knowing that it's part of the work that you must do now as a parent of a child of color um, has to be a sacrifice that you are willing to take um, if you are adopting children who do not look like you. Yes, and I thank you, Tracy, for and both you too, Kristen. Um, I love that, Tracy, that you mentioned this notion of you know, love is being more than just, you know, about love. Love isn't just enough. And, you know, this is something that we kind of talked about previously. I know Terry and I have had these conversations. I think Tracy, we've talked about it before about um, even how this logic applies within the conversation within church. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you, um, you know, I'm, I hope I can be very candid and frank um, here. But that's, that's why we call this a group chat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm messing with you. Go ahead. Yes, I'm a Christian. Um, I know we are all Christian. We all are. Yeah. And um, you know, it, I feel like sometimes that that the waters can be muddied a little bit when it comes to that topic about you know about love, and sometimes we can stretch that out to try to make it apply and fit for every scenario. Not saying that, you know, love doesn't apply, but really this whole notion about, you know, doing the work and that it it takes something deeper than love. Can you guys each kind of share your perspective on that? Um, Well, I think first and foremost, I was a theology student. I got a theology degree. Um, Both my husband and I went to Um, theology school because ministry was our passion. And I think I, it's, it makes me a little bit ragey to hear that, that love would be enough in any circumstances because the gospel is not cheap and not easy. And the path of following Christ is full of kind of this refining process of pointing ourselves towards him enough that it reveals the sin in our life um, so that we break down those things that just don't belong. There's just things in our life that have to go when I compare them to a Christ-like attitude. And to think that love would be enough even in my marriage, that if I love my husband, that I don't have to do hard work, that it doesn't require for me to change myself for the better to make that marriage work is ridiculous. Nobody would say that. Mm -hmm. Um, So to think that I have a black child that I cannot personally impart the knowledge of what it's like to live as a black person in this society. And the fact that I could possibly think that just loving them and treating them as if they aren't any different is going to do them any good is mind boggling to me. It really is. So, and, and I'm going to, Dr. Trace, I'm going to let you answer too, but I, I want to know um, from you, Christine, how was the process of unpacking um, something even from the standpoint of, okay, knowing love is not going to be enough in this, in this scenario um, that our family is taking on um, and recognizing 
some of the privileges as a white woman um, that you have knowing that you're going to have black children? Yeah, I think I think it probably benefited us quite a bit that we weren't already parenting. So I think sometimes it can be hard um, to come to adoptive parents who have been parenting typical white children fairly successfully in their minds. And then they add a black kid and they think, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because it's working well for me. And for us, like we knew we were getting kids with trauma. We knew we were getting children that were most likely going to have special needs and developmental issues. And so we poured ourselves into learning how to parent from a trauma competent perspective. And so in the same way, we also were like, we have to add this piece of adding kids to our family that are not going to look like us. Um, And we were fortunate enough to several years prior to that started doing a lot of mission work and being exposed to other cultures and realizing our privilege probably 10 years before we added a black kid to our family. Um, And so that's one of the things that I think is the first step is that a lot of white parents don't want to make that step of acknowledging their privilege. Um, And so I think the first step in that is acknowledging that white people have a homogenous culture. We like to think that we're individuals and we make our own destiny and the choices that we have made have all been our own and nothing has worked behind the scenes for us. You know, because if you acknowledge your privilege, you kind of have to take some of that achievement away from them. Um, And so um, I know I've always tell people we start with a book called Stuff White People Like, which is a book that was kind of satirical that this guy put together when I was in college. And it was just a list of things white people like. And as I read them, you know, I kind of see the white parents kind of light bulbs go off that, oh, you know, I didn't realize I liked expensive coffee because I'm a white person. And that's something we kind of share as a culture. Or we like independent films, like kind of acknowledging that maybe not all my choices have been determined by me, but also by a culture and the way that that culture has been steered. Um, So I think that having to loosen their grip on that privilege um, is a very important step. And it seems to be hard to acknowledge that because white people want to hold on to that um, with their clenched fingers. Because if I let go of that acknowledgement, if I have to see it, then I see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. And you can't stop seeing it once you've seen it. And let's be honest, white people don't like to be uncomfortable. They don't. They're used to being comfortable and prepared and not feeling othered in spaces. And so to kind of start to remove that veil, they don't like it. Dr. Tracy, would you like to chime in? Yeah, no, I, I she's making some very important points that um, I totally agree with. I mean, this idea of um, having to see the realities of structural racism is not something that is normed in white culture, generally. Um, When you grew up in a family that race was never a topic, never an issue, it's hard now to think about the fact that it is going to be present in your your family. Often people think if, if, if I'm loving my child ferociously and I'm giving, it's almost like you, you think you can pass your whiteness onto your child and you can't. And so instead of um, working from the lens of protecting them from racism or anything out there, you need to be preparing them 
Um, and so, because it's coming, it's just a matter of when. And so you want to have had those conversations and have the dialogue and done the work early enough so that when it comes, it's not a surprise and it's not as hurtful to your children. And I think part of that work is uh, helping white people, families, start to recognize those implicit biases and the, the microaggressions that happens in the lives of black people every day that often white people don't even recognize as it being a thing. Um, and so I think understanding the difference between implicit bias, uh, understanding the different levels or the different kinds of microaggressions are really important um, because I think Kristen's saying it right. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, and, but seeing it takes a little bit of work for you to view the world through the eyes of your children and not your own in your own childhood. Um, so I think it's important, you know, really understanding what microaggressions look like for people of color um, in their daily lives and how to start recognizing those things that um, are going to be hurtful um, and impactful to your children as they grow up. I also think it's important for you to think about um, what diversity looks like, right? If you belong to a place of worship or in a neighborhood or go to a school where there's three or four black families or whatever, you may think that's diverse. But for your child, that looks very monochromatic, right? It doesn't look diverse from their lens. So you have to as a parent of black or biracial children, you have to see the world through their eyes um, going forward. And um, it looks very different. And if you're trying to create um, a place of belonging for your child, a place where they have um, self-worth, self-esteem, self-identity, um, they are comfortable mm -hmm. um, racially and culturally, you have to see the world through, through the lens of, of who they are. Um, and how they will see the world and how the world will see them. I tell my kids all the time who are biracial that you can self-identify any way that you choose, right? So, you know, my kids look at themselves differently, um, but I'm going to raise you to know what it's like to be black in the world because that's the way the world will see you. So it's important that um, parents who are transracially uh, adopting children really think about the world through the lens of the children that they adopt. Yeah, it's interesting. First, thanks for sharing that. Um, and it's interesting that you brought that up too, because um, as we all, I think we've all watched that the recent, uh, well, it wasn't too recent. I think it aired in October of last year. Um, it was a Red Table Talk episode with, um, you know, Jada and her family and um, this young lady who was a transracial adoptee um she was a, um, a black young lady that was that was um, adopted by um white parents and um they raised her i think just from you know their core scope of what parenting looked like you know they were in a primarily predominantly um white community and so she wasn't raised um around or any integration of her culture um, I think kind of what you're touching on, Tracy, um, is important because if you guys listen or watch the episode, I encourage you to, to kind of get more of a, um, 
more of like the backstory of what we're going to kind of discuss here on that topic was that she grew up and she had some difficulties navigating um, through that. Um, I just want us to kind of collectively share our thoughts on that um, based on kind of what you guys, what was your take from the episode? I, I felt sad for her. I mean, I was angry on a lot of levels because I know the the number of families that are uh, transracial is growing and I do not, I mean, and, okay, this is my soapbox here. I do not want a generation of black children to not know who they are racially. I, that makes me angry. And she did not know who she was racially. She even felt, she even said she felt uncomfortable around the table of these three dynamic, yeah. beautiful black women. Um, and, um, I think her parents missed a lot of steps, uh, raising her, but I also think as an adult, she needs to be taking responsibility for herself and finding, um, her space racially, um, in the world. So, um, and I was also kind of upset with the red table talk because I don't think they pushed her enough on that. They didn't ask enough questions about that, um. Gammy kind of did. Was yeah. Gammy wasn't having it. I really, yeah, <laughs> Gammy was uh, really on the right track with some of the questions that she was asking because this woman said she wanted to help other transracial adoptees, but when you're still in a place where you're lost and you don't know who you are, um, you can do damage trying to help other people. So, um, you know, it's important that everybody does the work, right? And, and you, you can't help people um, when you've not done the work yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I agree with you, uh, Dr. Tracy, pretty much my sentiments across the board. I feel like that was the, her story was the picture of love is not enough. You know what I mean? Like that was a prime example of love is not enough. And it, while her parents had, I think the best intentions, right. They definitely missed the mark and it, and it, you can see the ramifications of that down the line in her life as she's um, now that she's an adult, I mean, it was, it, it became a slippery slope. Um, and, it, you know, I, I felt sad for her too. It made me angry and sad at the same time, because it was like, she doesn't know what she's, she's missed so much and she's got so much to catch up to. And because she, she didn't learn about her culture or wasn't raised being around her culture or informed about her culture, it, then it, it bred a, a type of fear inside of her, like you said, where she was sitting at a table full of black women and she said she felt uncomfortable. And I was like, what? Like, are, are you kidding me? Like that is, that was just the weirdest type of, that was the weirdest thing. I, I, I couldn't comprehend that. Um, and it just made me feel really sad. And, and the thing, Taryn, that made me so crazy about that is that you said that you're not comfortable around black people, you don't feel comfortable in your skin, but yet you want to help other people. And to me, that's that's damaging. Yes. Yeah. Very. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. That's what that is. I, I agree. I, I didn't understand that either. I was like, sis, you trying to help people do the work? Yeah. yeah. You have to do, do the work first. Okay. I agree. Christine, you have any takeaways? I mean, I think adoption in general, even if we're not adopting transracially, is filled with a lot of nuance. I mean, kids with trauma have just a harder time developing identity in general. And when you add that transracial piece to the mix, I think the Red Table Talk would have benefited from a longer 
discussion. You know, I feel like it was way too short to kind of unpack. Um, Part of me is a little, you know, it's a, we try to take as adoptive parents, transracial parents, we try to take a conglomerate approach. I try to listen to a lot of transracial adoptee voices as adults. Um, So this is just highlighting one woman's experience. Um, And so you can tend to only get like a single lens view of what it was like for her. But I think that overarching theme of white parents missing the mark in general, raising black men and women um, to have strong racial identity is obviously happening everywhere. Um, And so the only person I can really identify within that red table talk is, is the white parents. And I mean, it just made me want to cringe. Like, the fact that I, I believe they actually, the, the words they used were, you know, that race didn't, didn't even factor into their decision. Mm-hmm. You know, that they heard that there was a kid that needed a family that had a special, a special need and they didn't even stop to consider that she didn't look like them. You know, that they let people touch her hair because they'd never seen a black person before that she thought she was white, but Before she looked in the mirror because she just was surrounded by white people all the time. I, th- I hope that that serves as kind of a push and a, and a, you know, and a long-term view for some of these parents who have little kids of what they may be doing by not doing the hard work and developing a positive racial identity in their little kids right now. Um, because she seemed like she still has a lot of healing to do. And a lot of work to do on her part to um, be comfortable and proud of who she is as a black woman. And it, it does concern me that she has kind of a platform of educating other transracial adoptive parents. Um, but I know that she has also said on her blog that she thought that it wasn't necessarily edited as well as she was hoping. So I'm hoping that, you know, that maybe that was an impetus for her to maybe start doing some work on her part. Yana, do you have any thoughts on the episode? Did you share your thoughts already? Um, Other than what you guys already have touched on, I think we we touched on all the main marks on it. I agree that I do feel like, you know, it was only so much you can really capture in what was the episode went like 18 minutes um, length. So I would have liked to get the, the fuller experience of that and to really understand. But, you know, it still was enough to, to, uh, to demonstrate that there was some work that still had to be pursued um, on all parts, I would say, um, because, you know, as Kristen just mentioned that, you know, from the parents' eyes, which, you know, you it's so hard because you want to lead with love. And here it is, a, a perfect example of, mm-hmm. um, you know, you just want to take some a child out of an experience um, that needs help and you want to just, you know, do your part and give them the best life. But um, there are still pieces of that puzzle that just weren't, you know, completed. 
and um, and you know those those came with after effects. So it 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 did um, some pieces. It 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 allowed. I mean, I think they did their best. I think they did a. I think they did. Um, they had great, I would say, good intentions behind their parenting, but I do feel that they missed the mark when it came to really creating a space where um, she was fully in tune with who she is and you know, her culture and helping her get immersed and also educating themselves around um, kind of preparing her for what real life experience would be like. Because I hate to say it, but you know, there's so many elements to raising um, children, especially Black children. Even as parents, you know, Terry and I, we, we both have mm-hmm. Black children. There's even things that we have to consider, continuously consider different scenarios to prepare our children for. And um, I don't think sometimes um, other cultures or um, specifically in this case, uh, white individuals sometimes get the gravity of that. And that's why the foundational work is so important. Um, so that was kind of just my big piece. Yeah. I, I just want to jump in real quick. Something, I just, something that ran across my, my brain, something ran across my brain, Lord. Um, but something just kind of popped up in my head and I'm not sure I'll be able to articulate this well, but just even thinking about how you just said, Yana, um, how a lot of times, you know, white families will adopt black children or children in general, but specifically black children or brown children to, you know, they may be in a difficult situation. So they want to remove them and give them the best life. And um, I, I just, all, I've thought about even from, and I, I don't want to steer the conversation in a completely different direction, but the the notion of a lot of times we see people with, um, when we're talking about like, pro-choice and pro-life scenarios where people, you know, they're fighting for the life of the unborn, right? But it's almost to to an end point, right? Once that baby or that child stops, is no longer a child and they become a teenager, they become an adult, then they're seen, and I'm talking about Black children specifically, that they're seen, they're looked at as a threat and no longer as, oh, this innocent life. I wonder if the same sort of, not the same sentiment, but similar sentiment in where you got, you're adopting this child, this innocent life, this helpless individual, they can't do anything for themselves, they can't provide for themselves, you want to give them the best life, but you don't think about their life beyond, you know, once the point, at some point, they're probably going to have to leave your house, they're going to become adults, they're going to have to live life on their own. And what that looks like for that child once they leave your home. So you can protect them within the realm of your home while they're there, 17, 18, and then they become adults and now they're left to fend for themselves. So if the work's not being done while they're in your four walls, God help them when they leave and become adults. You know what I'm saying? But I don't, I, I think it happens, but I mean, let's not, let's not say 17 or 18. Let's say the minute that my child is able to walk in front of me in a store and is not can, it's not covered by my privilege in a store. You know, I have a 11, a nine and an eight year old boy and it already happens. It's not it's not just about teaching them how to be an adult. It's as soon as they go to school. It was two months before somebody called my kid a racial slur. And if white people pretend like that's not really happening before it happens. If they don't instill 
Black families instill protective measures in their kiddos before discrimination and bias from the time they're little babies. You know, you guys have have done that for your kids as they grow up so that the first time they encounter that bias or that discrimination, they think this isn't this isn't about my self-worth. And if white parents aren't doing that, then a transracial adoptee's racial identity struggles because they think there's some they already struggle with self-worth because I'm adopted and my first family didn't wasn't able to keep me. But now you've added an element of why is this happening to me? What's wrong with me? Not what's wrong with the system. Right. Yeah, I was going to jump in. I, I, that's the, such great points. I mean, really, I mean, it, a couple of things that jumped into my mind, into my brain too, Terry. <laughs> when Terry said something, when Yana said something, and when Christine, when you said something, um, the first thing that came to my mind between Yana and Terry thought was this idea of the white savior, right? Um, we are, if you look at how you save this child from circumstances, or you save this child from um, you know, being a statistic or whatever that is, it's already the wrong message. And um, a lot of children kind of are the victims with a family who's raised them as um, with that white savior mentality. Um, so we have to be very careful that the child doesn't grow up feeling like they were saved or that they can't speak their mind because they were lucky not to be in that foster home anymore or whatever that is. So this idea of needing to, to really do the work on black culture and what that looks like and not letting your child feel like that, that you are the white savior that came in and changed their lives and their lives would have been nothing or less than without you. So that's really important. Um, the other thing is um, something that you guys touched on that reminded me of, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, um, the cultural um, iceberg. So you, you picture this iceberg and you know how the peak of the iceberg is what you see above the water and underneath it, it's a whole big block of ice that you, that's bigger than it, than the top underneath the water. And so the, the things at the top are the cultural things that you can see that are easily, you know, the, the color of their skin, um, you know, maybe a dress or maybe the, the waist, you know, things that are easy to see. And underneath the water are those cultural nuances that, you can't put your finger on, but they are bigger than the things that you can see. Um, and so it's, you know, this way of protecting our children or to sharing cultural nuances in, in the community or in the world that uh, white people don't get to see that we have to do this in order to protect our children. Like having to talk about how you, you um, behave around law enforcement, um, how the world's going to view you if you go outside with your pants hanging or or those things, you know, those conversations that we have, um, how we respect elders in our community, what you say when you walk into a black woman's home, um, those kinds of things that are, are, are the underwater of cultural nuance that need to be taught to children who are black and are not being raised by black families. Um, because it's gonna come around, like Christine said, it's not even about when they're an adult. These things come up when they are young kids, and we have to know how to navigate those spaces so these children grow up feeling whole, feeling like they belong, feeling nurtured in both sides of, of their culture, of who they are. Yeah, that, I think that's great. Thank you for summing all that up for us. Um, I do want to know from both of you, like, how do y'all navigate 
through those difficult moments. You, Tracy, having children who are who are biracial, but you, like you stated earlier, you you raise your children um, to understand that the world will view them as as black. And then for you, Christine, um, being a white woman and you know um, raising black children, how do you how do you prepare yourself and how do you prepare your children for those moments, um, those those implicit biases? Uh, those microaggressions. What what's the work that that you ladies do to prepare for that? I think for me, it's about having open and honest conversations with my children. We talk about everything. Um, we let things in, in the current current events dictate some of our conversations. Um, we have those conversations. You know, I have four four black boys. We've had those conversations about the way the world views them and what I need from them and, and what it means to be a black male, what it means to be a gentleman, what, what all that means in the world outside of our homes. So I think really being able to have open and honest conversations with your children, and this doesn't mean that you know the answers. I think being honest about saying, I don't know all the, all, all the answers. I have more questions than answers. I think that's okay too, because what that does for, to me is it, it allows you to live in your children's world and not asking your children to live in your world, which is really important for transracial families. Um, so I think not having things, having everything on the table, not leaving anything out or anything that's that you can't talk about in the home. So I think it's important that you do the work because you have to know how to navigate that space. And I think doing the work with your children is important too so that they're learning and growing and see that you're willing to learn and grow as well. So being intentional about the conversations that you have in your house helps prepare them for what happens outside of the home. I mean, yeah. I mean, exactly what Dr. Tracy said is that already I have an element of my kids have early loss and trauma and things. And so we, you know, we say that we don't get to pretend like the world is warm and fuzzy. Um, because our kids have had major losses before they even came to us. And so there was a commitment from the beginning about helping them process that because that is, you know, a big T trauma, um, as we like to say. So adding that element of also, we don't get to pretend like there aren't things happening in a systemic racist society. And so we are literally trying to find ways because it's it's hard for us as white parents to learn the questions to ask that black families are asking their kids every day, you know, what happened at school? Why do you think that happened? Um, that we have to, we have to work really, really hard at. Um, but we try to have very intentional connections with our children. Um, so that nothing is off limits. Nothing is off limits that you want to talk about or that is hard for you. And if I don't have the answers because I'm a white person and this doesn't happen to me, then we have made connections with black families and black spiritual leaders that can help our kids navigate that for themselves, because there's certain things that I'm just not going to be able to teach them. And so the hard work is on me to make those opportunities and not just pretend like, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just act like everything is okay. And then when something big blows up, then we'll handle it. You know, that's like a crisis management. We're working more in the intentional mode of trying to do it every day so that we're processing little things so that when big things come up, 
it's it's not as as big of a shock. And I think also too, you have to be ready for your. We're talking about the world, like you know, preparing them for the world. But I think it's also important that you may have to you may have to protect them from people in your own families. Um, that you may have extended families that have racist um, tendencies or um, demonstrate lots of microaggressions. Um, and so, as a family unit, I think it's important to have a plan. You know, be prepared to cut people off. Uh, establish rules of engagement for people with your children. Um, protect your children from any extended family that may hold these racist beliefs. Um, you know, have a game plan ready if this comes up or if families are engaging in these practices. What are you going to do about it? Be clear and open and consistent with the way you navigate in your extended families. Um, and be I'd be willing to cut people off if it means protecting your children from from um, some of this negative practices. And also, I think it's important too that, um, and I kind of touched on this before about looking at the way you see diversity from your own lens versus your kids' lens, and looking at your neighborhood, your place of worship. You know, how can you make sure your children are around children who look like them? You know, maybe it's, um, I don't know, maybe you have to change your church. Maybe you have to, if they're involved in extracurricular activities, maybe you have to go on another side of town to make sure they're on a black, you know, sporting event or after school um, rec center or whatever. But um, you have to really be intentional of making yourself uncomfortable so that your children are comfortable. Uh, Dr. Tracy, you just spoke to me personally, and I'm not a transracial uh, adoptee, uh, uh, nor do I have transracial children, any of that. But you just spoke to me. Me and my, me and my husband have this conversation quite often, and I even I think I've had this conversation with uh, with Yana too. It's like I struggle with the idea sometimes of living in the area that I live in, and my children not being exposed and not because of what's not being what they're not being exposed to here within our own home but we community is important just as important and so when my children are not being exposed all the time you know to different avenues within the community that may mirror mirror them i do struggle with that i mean i'm like do i need to move to the other side of town like do once a month or once every weekend like do we need to go hit up the skating rink like just craziness but you know what i mean like i even as a black parent myself, um, th- those are things that I've had to like wrestle with and are definitely. <laughs> no, I totally get it. Yeah. I, I, I'm the same way. Like in my neighborhood, we're the only black family yeah. in my neighborhood. Like we're the only one. And I, I made those mistakes when my older two were younger. You know, everything they did was, you know, basically in white mm-hmm. surroundings. And I felt like I was giving them their blackness. My family was giving their blackness. But as my daughter and my oldest son got older, I realized it was not enough. And I said, what do I need to do differently with my three younger ones that I don't make that same mistake? So, you know, I um, we applied for like one of the magnet schools, which was in a predominantly black, lower socioeconomic area. And my three boys went to that school, which was very diverse. Um, you know, I changed my younger son's basketball teams so that they are on a teams that have more diversity on their teams. So yeah, there 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 are some conscious 
decisions that we have to make, mostly as middle class, upper middle class black families that we are in. We are blessed enough with opportunities that we can give to our children that we have to be careful that those opportunities don't um, isolate them from from our culture as as black people as well. Sure, for sure. Kirian, I think the part that is different for white parents, though, is they're not coming home to a black family. Mm. Like your kids are coming home to black culture Mm -hmm. and ours aren't. And so we have to try a thousand percent harder for our worship communities and our sports teams. And not that you shouldn't be doing some of that as well, Mm -hmm. but your kids have something my kids don't. And that's when they come home, they have two black parents who can impart that kind of knowledge on them. And I don't, all of ours has to be external through our relationships, through the kids they play with, through this, the holidays that we celebrate. Yeah. Through the community gatherings that we go to. Um, And white parents don't want to be uncomfortable. White people don't want to be uncomfortable. And it requires you being the only white person in a room for the benefit of your child. So white people can just be uncomfortable. It's about time. (laughs) It's about time. They will, they will live if they go to a black church, they will live. Yeah. They will still get Jesus. He will still be there. And Kristen, I just a question to you. What suggestion would you have for parents and trans transracial families? What would be the First, those who are not doing the work at all. I mean, obviously, you're doing a lot of the work. What would be your your suggestion to parents as a first step, as for white parents as a first step to begin to do the work? I, the the first thing I usually suggest is getting into. There's a pretty large transracial adoptee social media community to join those because a lot of White people are not going to step out of their houses and drive in their car and go to black church as their first step, right? So to kind of ease them into it, if they start listening and seeing in their social media feed they're flipping through every day, the reality that transracial adoptees are struggling with having been raised by white parents um, and the issues of racism that they're facing on a daily basis. Once Once that is part of the information that you're taking in and you're absorbing, Like if that doesn't move you to action, then there's, there's something wrong with you because you can't ignore that their experience is happening and you have hundreds and hundreds of them in that community. And so I think that's a good first step because it doesn't require them having to do anything physical, anything about them having to like physically sit in a space that is uncomfortable for them. Um, because that's what I say, like your, your social media feeds, your shows, your news outlets, the things that you're bringing into your house, if those are filled with people of color, you will begin to see the experience and not be able to say, well, I can do great as a white parent to a black kid. You'll realize the deficits that you have um, when you see that these adult transracial adoptees are, are struggling with my parents never taught me this. My parents never mentioned this. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you too, you know, watching media, you know, you have to fill them with something a little more than that too, because the media 
definitely has a often has a negative slant on what it is to be black um, and not telling the story through a black narrative. So you definitely want to counter that in some ways by giving them real black experiences, you know, whether it's like you said, you know, you you have friends and other families, black families that you consult with or talk to. Um, I think adding cultural uh, mediaries and racial role models and um, is really important to counter some of the negative images that may be on, on TV and news or whatever. Yes, thank you guys so much for um, sharing more and really being transparent um, in this discussion because that's actually that's really what we want. We don't want we get enough of the scratching the surface type of um, discussions, and we really want to go deep. and I appreciate you both being candid and um, and sharing with us um, as we get ready to prepare to wrap. I do want to. Um, I want a little time for you both to kind of discuss a little bit more of your personal work that you're doing around educating around um, transracial adoption or um, I know you as well, Tracy, with social justice. Um, I have so long, if you you guys know, don't mind been asked to speak at adoption conferences. Those are pretty common in the adoption world where parents go and and try to learn information about different aspects of parenting kids with trauma and transracial adoption is a huge part of that. Um, and, you know, I was hesitant at first, obviously talking about transracial adoption as a parent, because I'm, I'm learning, right. This is a, this is a fluid experience and my journey is far from over and I'm not a transracial adoptee. I can't tell you what that's like. Um, but I actually had, you know, some encouragement from Tyrion saying, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't talk about it, if we try to get somebody that looks like Tyrion, that a black woman, you know, they, white people will be more likely to dismiss it. And that, that kills me, right? That, that's, I could say something and they're more likely to believe my accuracy or my, my trainings because I look like them and that's part of my privilege. Right. And so I have a real, I have a, you know, an uncomfortableness with the, taking up that space um, when white people take up so much space already. Um, but I, I try to make, you know, I try to, to hammer in that, like I'm introducing you to this journey and to the challenges that you're going to face. And I, and I joke that this is the last time I want you to listen to a white person about this. Like I'm getting you there. I'm starting the conversation that after this, the hard work is done by those who are living that experience and I can only get you started. Um, So, you know, I try to be really honest and, and really just make white people a little uncomfortable so that they realize that, you know, there is a whole uncomfortableness for their children being raised in a white household that they need to start unpacking um, and preparing for. Um, so that's that's kind of where I try to do my little part, but also step back and say, the reality is a transracial adoptee is the only person that can can really tell you what they need 
in that space. Yeah, Dr. Tracy, I'm going to let you answer just one second, but I just want to kind of give Christina Flowers really, really quickly, really quickly, because she just said she, you know, she kind of felt uncomfortable. She didn't know, you know, speaking on certain topics um, in in front of certain audiences and not knowing whether whether she even, you know, like she said, taking up another space again and not really wanting to do that. Um but, you know, Christine and I have become very good friends and uh, we have our side group chats as well. Um, and I, I just have to just give her flowers really quick because sis does her. She's doing the work. She's doing the hard work. Um, it it, it kind of blows my mind. And, and so it gives me glimmer, little glimmers of hope um, just for the world from the tra- standpoint of if you choose to become uncomfortable. Um, because that's 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 a sacrifice you have to make. You have to be willing to become uncomfortable in your whiteness, um, and and start to see the the world through a different lens, um, and do the hard work, and have the conversations, and read the books, and listen, and not always talk. Um, that um, you know things begin to to shift, your and and you begin to make an impact on people, and 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 even within your own family's lives. So I just want to say that about Christine, uh, that she is doing work. And I feel like, and I'm gonna call you out and we might have to edit this part out. Um, but I feel like you've been a little, still being a little timid on this episode, but. Okay. I'm well, ed- listen, I'm- listen, okay. white people get on my nerves. Thank you, Christine. They do. They're annoying. They're exhausting. I don't even, I tell Tyrion all the time, how can you be friends with so many of them? Because it gets old like trying to get them to see something that they don't want to see. Right. Cause white fragility is a thing. And if you poke us, if you poke us and you start to say, I think maybe that's racist, what you said there, they lose their minds. They, they cry. Why do they cry? White women cried nothing. Like they cry. They, they, because they so much want to hold onto the reality that their, their worldview is with is a is a color blindness, which is a dangerous ideology that we're white parents are instilling in their white kids. Um, mm. That they just they just freak out, and so uh, Tyrion has been a lifeline for me to be like I'm just I'm I'm over white people today. Like I can't. They're exhausting. Like I don't even know how you do it. And I'm like I've only been doing it. You know I've only had a black kid for 10 years. Like, how do I sustain this? And so that's how your family relationships change because toxic people have no place in my life. Racist family members do not get to be a part of my life because my kid is more important than that. Right. Oh, Mm. the real group chat starts after this. Oh, like, it's just, I don't, I don't know why. I, and I mean, Dr. Tracy, you're teaching them all the time and you're trying to get them to see connections and trying to push them to do the hard work. And it just has to be a little groundhog day over and over. I'm just going to say probably how that looks. Yeah. But your voice is very important in, in the, I want to say fight, but, um, in the transformation, your voice is very important. So I don't want you to feel like, because if you look at it this way, Christine, 
if, if your voice is not out there, then a white mom's voice who's not doing the work is out there instead of yours. And I would much rather hear your voice because you're doing, you're trying to do the work to make the world a better place for your kids. And so um, I don't want you to ever think that your voice is not needed. It is certainly needed. And, and the fact that you're saying, I don't have the, all the answers, it's fluid, I'm always learning, means even more that your voice is needed because you get it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I always say when I give the transracial adoption talk, it's always nice to have some black women in the audience because they're yes. nodding their heads. Yeah. You got your amen Because it's not yeah. news to them. It's not news to them. I'm like, I feel it. I feel it because the white people are like, what are you talking about? Like, I think I, I think that we have a real a real problem with. I don't know how to start chipping away at the colorblindness. And I feel like it's going to be an uphill battle. Um, But if I can just get them for that one hour to say, you have to do better because your kid is worth it. Your kid is worth everything. And so I've had to, you know, repent about my privilege and my unwillingness to see that before I had a black kid in my life. And now that I have that, it means everything. Nothing is, nothing is more important than figuring it out because his life depends on it. All of them, you know? No, I think you are doing great, great work. And even if you're doing it, you know, one other mom at a time, you know, every little stone in the river, right. Sends out big ripples. So that's how I see doing the work, you know, it's a small act that um, can have rippling effects over time. So if you change one parent's mind, that's one child who will grow up strong and healthy and whole, and then the rippling effects that that life will have on the world. So mm-hmm. if you can not see the bigger picture, <laughs> but focus on the one yeah. act that you've done that you know made a change, um, just think about the rippling effects that that has and just, you know, one by one by one. Otherwise it does mm-hmm. get overwhelming and it gets hard. And it. And I, I think transracial parents can tend to like, I mean, I will say we know a lot of other transracial families, obviously, because we're going through the process and we're doing trauma training mm-hmm. together and things like that. Um, and I think they can pat themselves on the back that their kids know other brown and black kids. Um, but I think it's really problematic um, if the only black kids your kids are interacting with are those raised by white parents. Like, come on now, we're all trying, but like we, we have to do better than just other white parents that have black kids. We have to, we have yeah, to push that's it one, one part of it. But that, yeah, you definitely have to go beyond that. Yeah. Um, I was joking because Last summer, I sent my oldest two to Black VBS. We did, they did, you know, our church. And then I I sent them to the Black church that we visit on a regular schedule. Um, And they said, I don't want to go to Black church VBS. And I'm like, why not? And they're like, because they're going to talk about white people and how weird they are. And I said, exactly. That's you, you just got the whole point. The whole point is I am sending you to a space where there is nobody that looks like me so that you can have the conversations that 
black people have when white people are not a part of it. Because I can't recreate that for you here in this space. So get in the car. <laughs> you just you just you just made my point for me. Get in the car. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, oh, Dr. Um, Dr. Tracy, we didn't get to you to chime in on the work that you're doing right now? Well, I, I think if I can, if I could take the liberty, sorry, to just kind of go over the my yeah. framework, and I think it, it could be a good closure for what I do. So I have a, a framework for transracial families, working with transracial families, and the acronym is BELONG. And the B, we, we discuss most of these points throughout the hour, but it's, you know, getting beyond love. So, you know, making, getting away from the colorblindness and the white savior mentality. The E is for expanding the village. So this is what Christine says she does, right? She has other cultural mediators, other role models, racial role models and surrogates for her children to kind of fill in the gap. So that's expanding the village. The third one, which we didn't talk about at all, I call it lotion and leave-in conditioner. So this is like the hair and the skin and the, all the cultural needs that you may not know about that are important to raising black kids. The O is for opening up space for dialogue. So this is where that intentional, open and honest um, conversations with yourself as a white person in a racialized world and the open conversation, honest conversation you need to have with your children. The N is for navigating the home front. So this is like, how do you create safe bicultural homes for your children, whether you're looking at the extended family that you may have to let go, what's in your house in terms of um, books and pictures and art and holidays and food and all those things um, and creating bicultural homes. And then the G is for get support. So that's support groups. That's like Christine saying, she goes to some of these um, racial adoption conferences, um, Get, taking classes, and then that's where like work work that I do is getting the coaching. So maybe you need to hire a cultural coach. That's what I do, helping um, parents to look at the cultural side of what they're doing and who their kids are. So I work one on one with families. I do group um, pro um, programs, and then also speaking engagements with adoption agencies or what have you to talk about. What does that look like culturally for kids who are being raised by white parents? That's amazing. I think if whatever we can do to make more required training, there's definitely not enough of that. Yeah. And then the numbers are growing and growing, you know, more and more kids. And I would hate to hear that 40% of the 1.7 million adoptees are going to lose their identity in terms of their race and cultural. Oh. And I and I think for 20 years, the only transracial and I've done, you know, countless home studies now. And the only education transracial information was a 30 minute video on hair care. Yeah, that's problematic again. And that's the tip of the iceberg. Right. When you look underwater, there's so much more. Than what you don't see. Which let's be clear, yeah. hair is important. I've been, I've been, I've been trying to learn how to cornrow since we're stuck at home. We ain't got nothing else to do. So I've been sending Terry in my pictures. I'm like, how does this one look? How does this one look? Um, 
<laughs> she that's like, putting me to shame. That's that's what she doing. She sent me that cornrow picture. I was like, like, well, we don't have to be yeah. in public for a month or so. Might as well, you know, work on our hair. I had to I had to step my game up. I was like, <laughs> let me try to cornrow somebody's heads real quick because Christine out here cornrowing. Well, that's important because um, it's even even just being, you know, a black um, woman, it's it's nav- it's hard to navigate within our own in the space of doing our own hair and our children's hair. So, yes, definitely. That is definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a historical, you know, there's culture to that. These black, especially little black girls, they need to know the culture of hair, why that's important in black culture mm-hmm. and and how our natural hair was really taken away from us and how it's come back to embrace that. So there's a lot of uh, black history in that that needs to be taught, thought about. Mm-hmm. And also on the same kind of, um, you know, tip of the, of the iceberg things, you know, if you're living in an all-white community, it's going to be hard to find some products for your children. I mean, makeup, hair oh. products, oh. those kinds of yes. things. Things that white privilege takes for yes. um, advantage of or take for granted. I I messaged Tyrion because I was like, I used to live in downtown Dallas. And I the, the hair care store was all black product. And now that I'm in the suburbs, there's nothing. Nothing. Yeah, those are things that you don't think about. I mean, you keep an Amazon business, but yeah, still, it's it's things that when you live in in a majority world, you don't have to think about those things. You can go anywhere and get whatever you want. Mm-hmm. I get a little particular about the hair because I told Tyrion it's one thing for if she goes out and her kid's hair is you know in process or we're in between styles, but. Yeah, and listen, I with with biracial, I will not be that biracial kids too. I can always tell who has the black mom versus the black dad by the hair. Yeah, I put a lot of time and effort into it because I'm like, you will, you will not look like your white mama doesn't know what she's doing. Like we will, we will look sharp all the time. It takes a lot more time and effort. But it's also, we never complain about it. We never say this is hard or this is too much work. Like, we want to love what God has given us. Um, and so, you know, I'm watching YouTube videos on the side and preparing and trying different things. But for her, we want it to be a positive experience, yeah, a fun great. experience, you know, picking out our hairs, looking at other Black women. I mean, I have a photo of Tyrion and Noah because they both wore the same hairstyle on the same day. And my daughter Noah was like, we match. We have the same hair. And that was such an important moment for her to see somebody who was a beautiful black woman that had her exact, who had just happened to wear the exact same style. That validated her. her. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So when she told me I needed to cornrow my hair, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Mm-mm. White people, white people are not taking the corner. Stop it! No, no. Oh gosh, mm. no, no. It's not a good look for you. You don't, you don't, you don't have the right hair. You don't have the right head shape. <laughs> don't do it. You look ridiculous. <laughs> well, 
They've tried but, here. I mean, there, that's that's that's, that's my people's thing, right? <laughs> we take everything. We take everything. Everything belongs to us, and we don't care about the destruction in the way. Yeah, I think you guys mm-hmm. had that discussion on another yeah. episode. Yeah, we did. Christine, be listening. Dr. Tracy, be listening. Thank y'all for listening. <laughs> wow. I pull from today's um, message. Yes. And I, I just can't wait to um, share this, you know, with our listeners. And I really hope those that are listening that are tuning in that, you know, you really fully immerse yourself into the gravity, the gravity of this conversation. Um, this is our intention, of course, is not to create this white and black divide, but we are wanting to be very candid and open and transparent about the fullness mm-hmm. of our experiences. So um, we have laid it on the table. And I think, Yana, it's really about working together to raise whole, healthy um beautiful black children and biracial children that's really what the conversation's about yes thank you doctor and i think i think it's important for white people to understand that even still the national association of black social workers believes that black children should be placed in black families that should be you know a priority and that was kind of taken away um in the 80s and the 90s with acts of placing children quickly with no regards to race um And I think we kind of have to, white people have to address the issue of why wouldn't black families, why wouldn't black women, social workers want us to have black children? And a lot of that is because of all of these things that we're talking about today, that we, we don't understand the experience and the effort it requires on our part um, to make that positive racial identity for our children is, is not always being done. By white families. Um, so the concern is there that there's still a lot of work to do, educating and, and pushing white families to understand what they're, what they're taking on um, is a lifelong journey and not something that um, colorblindness is going to solve. And, it, and if, if white families take the attitude that they, to assume that they are not the experts on culture issues, that they're just not, and that you got to find the help and letting go of your ego and your parenting. Don't be embarrassed or ashamed or feel guilty about not knowing something about your child and ignoring the differences is really ignoring your child. So ask for help. People who ask for help are normally better parents because we get more tools in our toolbox of parenting to support our children. So ask for support. Say what you don't know and get help. Doesn't make you a bad parent, makes you a wise parent. Absolutely. Wow, man, this is some good stuff. I'm like past the collection plate after this conversation. Okay. (laughs) Thank y'all so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, We we are about to close, but before we close, I just have just like one more question for the both of you. Um, Can you ladies just kind of share with us how uh, we can connect with you outside of this, how listeners can connect with you outside of of this show? And then also, um, if you have any upcoming projects or anything, speaking engagements, um, our listeners, I know, would love to know more about how they could, you know, get in contact with you ladies. So would you mind sharing that? Um, I my website is tracybaxley.com, T R A C I 
P-A-X-O-E-Y. Um, so you can find me there. And I am also on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Social Justice Parenting. And um, I also am a homeschooler you know, before <laughs> we all became homeschoolers. And I post homeschooling things now. So during this time period, if anybody's interested in homeschooling ideas or tips, um, I'm at Brown Schooling. Instead of homeschooling, it's Brown Schooling. Also on Instagram and Facebook. Okay. Christine, you have any speaking engagements or anything? I know we're, uh, we're, everything's kind of shut down right now. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you're so doing anything my, digital. All my in-person trainings have been canceled um, for a while um, until adoption conferences kind of start back up. Um, I'm on Instagram at Smith Crew Mama, but um, I'm definitely ha- still working, doing conference calls with parents. Um, this, especially in trauma parenting um, training, this is a very difficult time for trauma kids right now to be stuck at home and uh, out of their routine. Um, so just trying to reach out to those families um, and help them kind of make a new normal while we're we're stuck at home. But um, I'm also available for happy hours if anybody wants to meet me once we get back to uh, yeah. life. Real life. Let's talk about it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> virtual no, happy I'm, hour. Yeah. Yes. And I wanted to say thank you to Christine for for really trying to do the work that it requires to raise her beautiful black children. So I follow you on Instagram as well. So just just thank you for doing the work and keep your voice out there. It's needed. Thank you. I'm I'm really, you know, if you want to start a, a chapter in in Texas, we would be super awesome to have the access for Texas agencies to have some of that stuff too. Um, I'm hoping that your your reach just grows and grows and grows um, because um, you're doing you're doing the Lord's work, <laughs> Dr. Tracy. Hey, thanks to both thank of you. you. Both are doing Amen. the work. We appreciate it. Um, you know, Terry and I, all we could do is just live our platform and we be here. Um, and we appreciate that you you know are lending your voice and your experience expertise to this this conversation and um hopefully we can continue to drive this narrative and get more people on board absolutely once again thank you ladies so much thank you both for doing the work thank you for um being beacons of light and truth um in love thank y'all so much um and like y'all just said you know we just the platform (laughs) y'all and i over here facetiming each other uh just just so we can have visual cues because we Mm -hmm. normally um will record in person but you know y'all two are just you know going back and forth and and sharing your thoughts and me and y'all are like leaning back in our chairs like this is their show today i'm thinking thinking dr tracy and i would be friends i like that for sure for sure actually i was just thinking that how do we figure out how christine and i connect and work together that was the whole point i ain't gonna hold (laughs) y'all I just just want y'all to know I have surveyed the land and there are very few non-exhausting white people. So if you need me to be your friend, I will. I'm available. We got it. We got it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love it. Awesome.
Thank you guys for the platform. Absolutely. This yeah, is great. You. You're welcome. We are, we are all at our doors. Well, not necessarily our doors at this moment because we, you know, we are all on lockdown. <laughs> Oh, I know Tyrion. Tyrion will not let me in if I walk over there right now. No, I won't. I won't. I will love you. I'll talk to you through my ring doorbell, but that is about it, Christine. <laughs> but no, our platform, our virtual doors, we're uh, we're always open to both of you. So um, we would we definitely will welcome another conversation, a part two. We can do a whole series. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Absolutely. There's a there's a there's a lot of, to unpack and. With you two and Dr. Tracy, I uh, would always be ready to uh, take that opportunity to to talk with you guys and and maybe get the get the education out there. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, I don't have anything else to add. Do you, Terry? No. Good as gold. Until then. <laughs> <laughs> Melanate on that. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our chat today. Keep the conversation going by heading to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leaving us a review. Have a story of your own to share? Email us at info at melanatedconversations.com or connect with us on social media at Melanated Conversations. Till next time, keep raising your voice. voice.